0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It seems hard to believe, but it's been a full week since I was on the air last with you guys. And I sure have missed being on the air, but I'm glad to be back on the air as always. Regardless of whether we are entering a new uh, book topic or in the middle of um, of an existing one, one way or another, it's great to be on the air. And what do you know? It's time for another book topic series discussion. Hard to believe that since I started back in June of 2020, I am am now on my 26th book. I'm not just, I'm not trying to set any kind of records, but what my mission, or rather I should say my mission, is to tell as good of a story as I can per any of the subjects that I have uh, shared with you all since June of 2020 that um, that intrigued me to where you all, my fellow listeners, walk away knowing more about than you did previously before. Just when we think we know all the answers to something that is of a historical significance, more often than not, we come away um, learning something new or a handful of things uh, that are new to us. That um, weren't in existence, say, 20 years beforehand in terms of uh, information available. Well, I have a great treat ahead of us for this uh, new podcast uh, series discussion. I'm not going to tell you all the title of what we're uh, learning about just yet. Usually that um, comes about towards the end. That's not a bad thing either, but I do know that um, that the uh book topic I will be discussing with you all pertains to an event that um, happened 110 years ago. There have been plenty of documentaries made about this um, event because it was largely in part because, for one, people have been intrigued by this event from the time that the, um, from the time that before the event itself even happened. If I tell you too much now, I'd be giving it away, but I do know that in order to understand where we're going in this next series, there has to be an introduction, or rather I should say a prologue, because without a prologue, how can what we are going to be learning about have any true significance? You know, it's one thing to you know report a few facts or report some basic 101 stuff, but to me, Getting that introduction out there is important, because we've got to know where we're going, one way or another. So, we have a lot of information to cover in this introduction. And I know I've shared with you all before that uh, when I have uh, done uh, podcast uh, segments, whether it's an introduction or, uh, or an episode that uh, is after the introduction, I usually average about uh, five pages. Sometimes it's six. I will tell you all here that this uh, prologue is six pages. So we've got 60 minutes to get this right. So now is the time to get going. So let's uh, fasten our seat belts and be prepared for an introduction that will lead us to our ultimate objective. And that is the official title of what we are about to um, learn per this uh, next uh, book topic discussion. When people hear the phrase, or term, Age of Exploration, their first thoughts center upon famous European explorers like Christopher Columbus and his voyage into the New World in 1492. 530 years ago, folks, Christopher Columbus and his uh, crew, or rather I should say his crewmen aboard the ships the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria came all the way from Europe into what we now know as the West Indies. In the year 1492, it is hard to fathom, in my mind, it is hard to fathom that that when Columbus and his um, band of uh, crewmen arrived into what we know as the West Indies, they did so 115 years prior to England's first established settlement in the New World in what we know as uh, Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. While the Age of Exploration was responsible for implementing vast trade networks across the world, the movement was also marred by constant contact with native peoples, whose civilizations collapsed through means of warfare, and not just warfare, most notably diseases diseases that so many indian tribes had never come in contact with from smallpox malaria yellow fever dysentery and sadly for these native peoples they had no resistance towards it no built up immunity so yes it was one thing for europeans and indians to go to war against each other but the greatest uh, killer sadly for many of uh, for many indian civilizations or many Indian peoples was disease. No wonder many Indian peoples often viewed the Europeans as invasive species. Invasive species, the term onto itself, should not be anything that uh, should be confined to what's just happened in the 21st century. Even in the 16th and 17th centuries, and before then, when the age of exploration began, when Europeans started making their way and to North, South, and Central America, the Indian peoples referred to them as invasive because they were not native to the land. They weren't native to the habitats. They basically were seen as uh, bad omens, curses, and how sadly that came to be true when civilizations were wiped out because of um, unforeseen circumstances like diseases. It was one thing for trade routes to be in place going 3,000 miles across the ocean from Europe into the New World, but even an ocean itself has a mind of its own. The North Atlantic, which saw during the age of exploration her share of ships and crew make journeys into uncharted waters where survival wasn't always guaranteed. The North Atlantic Ocean's presence could initially start out as an inviting view of deep waves forming well in the distance where those of us would be immune from anything crashing upon us. But if conditions were just right, a situation could worsen where rogue waves followed by howling winds resulted in catastrophic destruction and loss of human lives. Of course, when I think of rogue waves, uh, sometimes I've come to uh, think of rogue waves as, yes, I know rogue waves happen on the oceans, but believe it or not, rogue waves happen on the Great Lakes. And maybe I say the Great Lakes largely in part because of a past uh, podcast uh, book topic series that I've done. The North Atlantic also had other tricks up her sleeves which are which still are present in the modern world such as blinding fog making ships means of passing and entering through bodies of water very difficult no matter how sophisticated technology of the time present presented itself even today with the most sophisticated of technology even if there's severe fog outside. It doesn't mean that even with the most sophisticated of technology that ships passing and entering through bodies of water couldn't be immune from perhaps colliding with another ship. During the 17th and 18th centuries, transporting cargoes to and from Europe, including North America, had become a fixed economic staple In other words, a permanent economic staple, perhaps. Meaning people's livelihoods depended upon established trade routes where goods and services could only be attained at certain or rather specific time periods within a year. So we have to remember in the 17th and 18th centuries, folks, there's no such thing as Amazon. You know, we can't have goods brought to us uh, regardless of the day Or time, in other words, there's no such thing as 365 days a year. Instant services, so these trade routes are there, but it could only be at certain times of the year that uh, ships are sailing these trade routes, bringing people certain goods that are in which they are dependent upon as means of uh, economic survival, not just for personal consumption, but perhaps. The consumers are uh, merchants, merchants whose livelihoods depend upon uh, goods coming overseas to sell to customers whom perhaps have established uh, credit. And not everybody can have established credit. Perhaps these trade routes were designed for where the uh, end receivers were an elite group of society, perhaps like the, the gentry. Well, you know, uh, receiving the cargo in its final finishing touches, in other words, no damages or defects, was always important. But loss of cargo, or rather cargoes, always was troubling due to the fact that loss of revenues could never be replaced, which worried merchantmen in their pockets. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to Lose revenue all because a ship or or a set of ships uh endured um, endured uh, an unfathomable storm that uh, caused so much damage to the ships that the cargo was destroyed. It's not like the merchants can call up and say, Oh, can you just uh reissue us an order of stuff and have it sent to us within you know overnight' <laughs> We just didn't have those kinds of services back then. So, when uh, cargo um, was uh, lost due to uh, means that were beyond mankind's control, that also meant loss of revenue, money that could not be replaced. If passengers, most notably crew people, perished at sea, their fates were seen as part of the standard risks taken when crossing the when crossing the vast North Atlantic Ocean. In other words, the most common um, notes recorded in journals when it came to um, travels along the um, waters, most notably, like say, the North Atlantic Ocean, pertained to the cargoes transported upon the vessels. There really was hardly no mention of any uh, person or persons, the only mention of a person or persons would have been perhaps the captain of the vessel and his uh, crew if there were other uh, passengers aboard they were just regular average joe's coming from from point of origin to perhaps start a new life in um in north america but more often than not the necessary documentation was that of a cargo and if and again if a passenger or passengers died it was simply because of the risks that they willingly knew up up beforehand uh, that were involved when crossing the uh, vast North Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the nineteenth century for both uh, Western Europe and North America became one of greater radical changes as each continent took advantage in everything industrial related, which meant more demand to send businessmen and merchants by ships across the North Atlantic for commercial purposes. So keep in mind, folks, even around the start of the 19th century, America is not an industrial superpower. We're still an agrarian-based economy and will continue to be, but it's really not until about um, 1825 and onward that America starts uh, working its way up and becoming more of an industrialized nation. So, bringing goods from east to west and vice versa across the North Atlantic was vital for essential uh, commercial uh, purposes. But at the same time, great migrations were happening from Europe to Canada and the United States, where agrarian societies now became intertwined into industrial network settings. These migrations were the result of a new industry emerging on North Atlantic waters, whole shipping lines whose purposes served dual roles, carrying passengers to transporting cargo. By the mid-19th century and afterwards, newspapers began advertising crossings Crossings, folks, like going from point from origin to final uh, destination, and perhaps these uh, crossings would have had you start out in um, one city and end in another, and then you know round trip, you start at the um, at the place that you arrived into to head back home. So, around the mid nineteenth century and afterwards, newspapers begin advertising crossings to and from cities such as Liverpool in London, England, Cove, now Queenstown, Ireland, Hamburg, Germany. So you had lines going from, say, London, England to New York. You also had um, lines that went from, say, um, New York, Boston, Philadelphia to Halifax, Nova Scotia. Or you could have had a run that went from Halifax, Nova Scotia to London, England. The bottom line is that shipping lines are coming across left and right, not just for commercial purposes, but for, um, but for transporting people, not solely for vacation purposes, folks, but for people who are going by uh, commercial liners to start a new life. In other words, they're starting a new life in a new world, America, in their eyes, the land of opportunities. Now it is fair to say that these, um, where these uh, whole shipping lines are also um, serving those for business purposes. In other words, businessmen boarding the ships, whom are uh, going from say from New York to London or London to New York, to make uh, business deals. Now, as for the shipping lines, there were a plethora of them. The ones that come to my mind, two in particular which will be discussed a great deal in this uh, book book topic series, Cunard and White Star Line. There were others known as Collins, Inman, Homburg, America, just to name a few of the many. People were moving across the ocean in masses going forward from uh, the mid-19th century and onward, but if there was one thing that people lacked, and not just everyday ordinary people, But the people manning the vessels, the captain and his crew, what did they lack? Well, we all lack it. We lack the power to stop Mother Nature's fury. And again, no matter how sophisticated our technology may be, even in the modern day world, no matter how much we do on our end to modify, that is to modify potential disasters, Nature, or I should say Mother Nature, will always be one step ahead of us. Prior to 1850, the first first known recorded passenger ship, which disappeared on North Atlantic waters, was Lady of the Lake, en route to Quebec, Canada from England in 1833. She foundered with 215 passengers and crew, The most likely cause, at the time, that led to her disappearance, was attributed to striking an iceberg. Between 1834 and 1836, two other passenger ship vessels, the Ocean Queen and Driver, perished along North Atlantic waters, resulting in the deaths of 462 souls altogether combined. You know, it being on a boat, you know, that is on a um, perhaps at the time a luxurious passenger liner, it was pretty amazing. And those whom could travel obviously were well to do, but for those whom were of lower classes wanting to start um wanting to make life in a new um environmental setting or just a new a new setting where there were better economic opportunities in terms of say coming to America yes being on a passenger ship was um, was um, was unique because you probably had never had the experience before but regardless of your class status nobody really in a sense was immune from uh, from witnessing disaster firsthand i can't imagine being on lady of the lake and knowing that the most uh, likely factor in her death, and her disappearance, was perhaps striking an iceberg. Think about it, folks. No Coast Guard warnings. Um, no distress signals. So if you ran into trouble along the waters during the early 19th century and before, you really were at your own mercy good luck being able to find someone nearby who might come to your help. I don't mean that to be ugly, but that's really how it was. While some ships ultimately foundered and were never seen again during the early years of North Atlantic ship crossings, the first ship which got extensive publicity, given it had received the highest satisfaction level within America's merchant fleet, was the steamship President. President and steamship vessels were um were big largely in part because they were the first um motor powered um ship vessels for their time and we have to remember folks before uh, the advent of steam in terms of steamship vessels ships had to rely upon the wind or uh, the wind's uh the speed and, or rather the direction of which of uh, uh, of which uh, wind currents were moving just to be able to garner any kind of um momentous force in getting the boat off of the um off of its um dock and onto um and onto the heart of the water whether it was a river ocean lake the bottom line is folks we didn't have any modern day um conveniences like we do with being able to automatically start a car with turning you know the car keys on we we don't have anything like that uh folks so before think of it again, before steamship before steam, what are uh, boats relying upon the forces of mother nature for the for the right reasons in terms of um, wind direction and wind speed? So August of eighteen forty saw steamship president president make her presence, although it took more than sixteen days. That is just over two weeks, folks, to cross from New York to Liverpool, England. One issue plaguing this um, grand uh, steamship was excessive coal consumption, where in one instance she was forced to turn back to New York in avoiding being stranded on the Atlantic. Sadly, on March 11, 1841, the President departed New York with nearly 140 passengers and crew, only to founder two days later from a violent sea storm, per reports from the Orpheus, an American ship. The President's disappearance sent many of travelers into frenzy, as overall total numbers declined due to greater perception behind steamers not being seen as safe phobia now all of a sudden is kicking in. The 1850s marked an era where ships from multiple liners experienced tragedies internally, that is, you know, malfunctions uh, with the ship from uh, within, like most notably boilers, boilers perhaps catching on fire, including misfortunes through Mother Nature's fury, violent sea storms, perhaps a ship encountering an iceberg, ships colliding with one another to where um, ships catch on fire. the list could go on and on, but regardless of the circumstances, none of these ships that um, experienced tragedies internally or through acts of mother Nature's fury had means to request proper assistance from any or all other ships out of the immediate vicinity. the problem at stake was lack of formal communications. Something's got to be done folks to reduce the overall number of frequent uh, occurrences along the um, water along the waters of the North Atlantic or anywhere else in the world, but most notably the North Atlantic where um, it just seems to now become a uh, permanent norm where ships, are just experiencing so many unpleasant misfortunes left and right that many are often now wondering, is it even worth being out on the water? Whenever ships and their crews sailed out of land sight, they became left on their own and fending off all things unforeseeable. Departure from land and into the heart of an ocean equaled out remoteness and inaccessibility, to everywhere else throughout the world. Think about it, folks. You know, if you're on a ship, you know what risks lie at hand. But once you leave um, out of land sight or out of port, you really are on your own. You don't know what the next day might bring. Sure, you could get some favorable winds, but who's to say that 30 miles ahead of you? That your sailing's going to be uh, smooth. Who's to say that somewhere down the road you are sailing in what is very pleasant weather, and all of a sudden the weather changes out of nowhere. It becomes so dark to where not only a a major rainstorm um, comes about, but perhaps lightning, lightning, a lightning strike that could um, that could damage the ship not just from above, but, but could cause damage below. Or perhaps your ship uh, striking a ground, hitting a shoal, um, a, a rock that, um, that could cause the um, bottom of the ship to flatten out and its uh, cargo uh, becomes destroyed. So many unforeseen um, issues, folks. Not to sound negative, but these are the risks that a captain and his crew take but there's always the the risk knowing that you know there's always that 50-50 chance of of knowing that we might not some of us could come home alive others may not or the whole crew might not come home alive if any stroke of fortune came to an endangered ship endangered ship situation the end result often was one where another ship could either be seen nearby or the non-endangered vessel herself could hear the pleas for help amongst those in peril whose lives were hanging by a thread. Something radical had to change as ship crossings grew and grew without any end in sight. Come turn come, turn of the 20th century, a young Italian engineer named Guglielmo Marconi had built a device which produced controlled or I should say frequent electric sparks that became added into electrical signals meaning electric sparks themselves could be taken hold of by receiving a device or devices over a distance nearly one and a half miles without the use of wires Hence, wireless communications. It's so easy. It's so easy to think in this modern-day world when we think of Verizon and any of these other cell phone companies that offer wireless services, that the wireless phenomenon must have gotten started within the last 25 years. Well, believe it or not, folks, wireless communications have been around for just over a hundred years. But, of course, the wireless communications that we know obviously were not put into place 110 or perhaps 125 years ago. There was an era that had been around for some period of time known as the Victorian era, most notably in England. The Victorian era thrived on communication practices, not just from one arena, but from multiple arenas. And, of course, when I say the Victorian era, folks, I'm referring to uh, Britain's Queen Victoria, whom ruled England from 1837 until her death in 1901. Uh, when In British Columbia, Canada, the uh, capital of British Columbia it's not Vancouver. It's Victoria, named in honor of Queen Victoria. So whenever you hear of Victoria, British Columbia, especially for you young people... Think of uh, Britain's Queen Victoria, whom reigned from 1837 to 1901. And do keep in mind that for an extensive period of time, Canada was under uh, Britain's um, reign even well after um, the United States had, had won its independence from England in the aftermath of the American Revolutionary War. So the Victorian era thrived on communication practices from postal... And mail deliveries, which occurred more than once per day in cities like London, uh, Liverpool, uh, Bristol, just to name a few of the many um, well-known English um, cities. Telegraph lines were connecting every town in many villages. Extensive underwater cables intersected the oceans, all of which made England's Empire, superior at home and abroad. It just doesn't get any better um, if you are uh, in England and seeing all these major um, revolutionary uh, changes happening with regards to communication practices. 1898. Uh, when I think of 1898, I think of um, of that year... Um, the Spanish-American War when um, when the United States declared war on Spain as a result of the USS Maine being blown up in Havana Harbor. Well, at the time, uh, the United States wanted to punish someone, and that was Spain. They were truly convinced that the Spanish had blown up uh, the USS Maine in Havana Harbor. And, of course, years later, historians um, learned that the Spanish actually did not blow up the USS Maine that the uh, explosion of the uh, warship USS Maine was res- came about due to an internal fire where um, one or two uh, coal bunkers overheated, causing mass explosions that resulted in tragic loss of life. But at the time, uh, somebody needed to be blamed for it, uh, given that Spain was not liked by many uh, people, um, given uh, her influence of uh, dominance in the uh, Western world. But nonetheless, 1898, two years after Guglielmo uh, Marconi had been officially granted the world's first patent on a wireless telegraphic system network, this led England and the United States' uh, navies to place untested wireless sets aboard some of their uh, warship vessels which ultimately proved how effective wireless communication at sea would become to where the following year of 1899 saw Marconi himself establish regular, consistent wireless communication between France and England across the English Channel. How revolutionary is that? Oh, I, To me, uh, to be able to establish regular wireless communication between France and England at the end of the 19th century, that was something very unheard of, but yet it happened. Of course, all that stuff nowadays is taken for granted, and it doesn't make it right, but we need to be reminded of how all of this uh, was laid out, because it was a big deal during the time at which it first actually did happen. By April of 1900, Marconi International Marine was created in instituting shipboard wireless sets for all merchant vessels and passenger ships, and the first hookups began in 1901. But for wireless systems to efficiently work, there had to be something else, folks. In order for wireless systems to efficiently work there had to it had to involve training people whom could operate them okay it's a two way street you've got these wireless systems in place but you've got to have the human side of it to make it work those whom sought to become wireless operators through marconi International Marine got their coursework at the Marconi School in Liverpool. And for those of you who aren't sure where Liverpool is, that is uh, north of London, well north of London, not too far from Scotland, but it is north of London. And of course, when I think of Liverpool, I often think of, um, of that uh, famous rock and roll band who made their... Um, who made their uh, first uh, visit to the United States in 1964, three months after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. They came on the uh, air, I believe they came on the Ed Sullivan Show. I wasn't even alive then. I just remember my dad telling me about this. And it was a big deal because the American people needed something positive to to smile about and to be uh, excited about, knowing that their beloved... Um, leader being president, John F. Kennedy had been tragically taken, uh, down, um, for all the wrong reasons. So yes, the Beatles, the Beatles folks were from Liverpool. So whenever I think of Liverpool, I always think of, um, the band, the Beatles, but anyways, uh, back to our uh, primary focus here that, um, Those who sought to become wireless operators through Marconi International Marine got their uh, coursework at the Marconi School in Liverpool, but it was known to the students as Tin Tabernacle, T-I-N, and then the word Tabernacle. I don't know how they coined it, uh, Tin Tabernacle, but that's that's what the students uh, came up with name-wise. The average term of instruction lasted roughly 10 months, where coursework consisted of electricity, magnetism, radio wave propagation, troubleshooting of equipment, just to name a few of the many um, topics uh, revolving uh, the coursework that the students uh, were required to um, handle and learn about. Graduates from tin tabernacle were employed on ships from multiple liners all over the world, so they're not all assigned to one company, folks. But regardless of whatever ship liner, th- regardless of whatever ship liner they served aboard, these young men weren't officially part of the crew. Meaning, a vessel and her owners co- contracted out with Marconi Marine for their services, which meant wireless operators within. Marconi remained as company employees. So the operators, folks, would still remain as employees with Marconi um, Marine, but at the same time, no matter which um, service line they were assigned to work with, they were employed full-time by that service line. Think of it as more of like supply and demand, if a particular liner doesn't have a strong schedule, but yet they need some, but yet they need an operator to, to um or operators to fill out to fill in for uh, the schedules that are running, they will use them for those for whatever number of routes are open, and then once those route schedules are done, they have to find work with another line, but yet they're still uh, with Marconi uh, Marine. The early years of the 20th century had no set-in-stone requirements for a 24-hour wireless watch to be maintained by any ships, with the exception of warships, which meant wireless operators worked their schedules based upon what captain of the ship had set up. Guglielmo Marconi's primary objective behind wireless communications sought to end all isolationism of ships at sea. Yes, ships shouldn't be isolated. I mean, yes, a captain and his crew do have the means to navigate the waters. But at the same time, they should be allowed the right to uh, communicate with other ships with regards to checking in on the well-being of other ships. To provide other ships, whether they are 10 miles out or 100 miles out, with the means of uh, of an incoming uh, weather alert, whether it's an advisory or warning, or anything that perhaps other ships just need to be made aware of. Isn't it fair to say that all vessels out on a body of water or bodies of water are in this together? Sure they are. You know, yes, you could be um, on a ship. You might be isolated from others for a particular moment, but it's not all about you. It's got to be about the entire team and not just you as the captain and your entire crew, but you also need to think about the well-being of other ships nearby who might need you for assistance. And you, as a captain and your crew, May need to be, might need to be dependent upon a particular ship or other ships nearby for assistance as well. Isn't it fair to say that all ships out there should not be burning bridges with one another? Absolutely. So, uh, the early years of wireless uh, communications existence aboard passenger freight liners. The system itself proved successful enough where accidents which occurred resulted with fewer losses in human lives. Wireless communications had now shown just how effective ships and their crews had become when reaching out to one another during times of distress uncertainty along the North Atlantic Ocean's waters. For a good stretch of time, most notably during the 20th century's first decade, it became widely perceived that wireless communications aboard all ships, no matter how nearby or far apart they were to one another, help would always be readily available to all vessels and crew people including passengers in times of emergencies along the North Atlantic Ocean. Again, um, it's all about teamwork, not just for you, the captain, and your crew. Not only as a captain do you need to look out for your crew, but if you have passengers aboard your ship, you need to think about the well-being of your passengers. And if you're a captain, you need to think about, the captain and the crew need to uh, think about, other passengers, uh, passenger, other passenger liners, and not just passenger liners, but yes, the cargo uh, liners and the ships that serve dual purposes of transporting cargo and uh, people. If we become too um, absorbed in our own world, then we are going to be um, perhaps playing with fire. Perhaps if we're not careful. We, we could fail to warn another ship or another um, ship or two of something imminent, something imminent that could be, that could be a deciding factor in, um, in whether or not people survive aboard another ship or whether there would be some form of uh, loss of life. There are so many uh, factors when being out on the uh, waters, and it, it never should be taken for granted so it would be fair to say and be fa- and it would be um we all would like to believe that even going forward after the uh, first decade of the 20th century that no matter how nearby or far apart ships were they would always be able to a crew and his uh, a captain and his crew or captains and their crew crewmen would always be able to to depend upon one another in terms of support and assistance in times of emergencies. Well, no matter how far along a man has come with regards to making progress, setbacks, big and small, occur where the events at stake will forever alter the course of history. And that has happened in all facets it's not confined to just one sector that could be a whole other topic onto itself but the one that I'm going to tell you all here next is some of you might think of it as the granddaddy of them all and that's fine by me but whenever I hear about this particular ship to me, it, it's it's the one that um, that changed so many things. The night of April fourteenth, nineteen twelve, the world's largest ship struck an iceberg, as a result of traveling too fast along North Atlantic waters. Meaning, by the time crow's nest lookouts spotted iceberg. It became already too late in avoiding what lied below the surface. People often forget that the worst part of an iceberg is what lies below the surface. You might be able to see 10% of the iceberg from above, but it's the 90% below that will either um, make or break the safety of your ship, no matter how big or no matter how small it may be. It's what lies below that could ultimately doom the fate of a passenger ship liner. So, nonetheless, this ship was dubbed unsinkable. And yet her crew tried outmaneuvering the iceberg only for her starboard or her starboard meaning the left and right sides of a vessel, this ship dubbed unsinkable, her starboard became severely compromised, meaning that the starboard had um, had felt the wrath of the iceberg, the iceberg tearing into the starboard where the rivets came out. Flooding resulted right away where more, where eventually more than four watertight bulkhead compartments became flooded, meaning that the ship would eventually not be able to stay afloat. The ship was the ship dubbed unsinkable, was dis, was designed to withstand flooding of four of her thirteen watertight uh, bulkhead compartments. Anything over four of those compartments that were flooded. Um, was not good. It basically meant that if if more than four watertight bulkhead compartments were flooded, that it would only be a matter of a, a matter of a short time frame before she could meet her ultimate demise. The ship, considered to be unsinkable by so many, did have Marconi wireless operators aboard, but in the days that led up to not led up to April 14th and 15th, 1912 from a weather standpoint had never been encountered before given the coordinate positions where this grand ship was sailing into were surrounded by mass fields of ice which which moved further south unlike ever before. The Royal Mail Ship aka RMS Titanic she received a total of six Warnings involving the presence of sea ice on April 14, 1912, but not all message warnings were relayed by the radio operators in a timely manner. From the time she first collided with the iceberg at 11.40 p.m. on April 14, her chances of survival had been doomed. Wireless operators on Titanic fervently called out for help from all ships whose systems were still up and running. One ship, 58 miles away, southeast from Titanic, responded and made a treacherous journey with one thing on her mind, coming to Titanic's rescue and saving all whom would survive. Another ship wasn't far from Titanic and witnessed multiple flares of distress rocket signals launched into the sky, but yet didn't bother to make any attempt in coming to the aid of the ship that appeared to be facing grave perils. Wireless communication was installed on this mystery ship, but yet her crew chose complacency over heroism, whereas the other ship sought a valiant effort, mission, despite all odds against them, knowing that they might not make it in enough time to save everyone whose lives were in danger. Well, folks, the title to our next uh, book topic podcast series discussion is the following. The Other Side of the Night, the Carpathia, the Californian, and the Night the Titanic Was Lost by Daniel Allen Butler whom has authored another uh, book on the Titanic known as um, Unsinkable, the full story of the RMS Titanic. I must say that um, I remember uh, when I was probably about, I was six years old when Dr. Robert Ballard and his crew had teamed up with a uh, French um, discovery team and were able to uh, locate the Titanic in the North Atlantic Ocean, about 370 miles off the coast of uh, Newfoundland. And how they went about discovering the Titanic was they found uh, a pair of her boilers. Once they had found a pair of her boilers, they knew that they had come across the discovery of a lifetime. And of course, by the time I was seven years old, that's when I really started getting into the Titanic. There are still plenty of documentaries on television that intrigue me about this ship. And I still have a model of the RMS Titanic I made, all right? I, I, my dad helped me build when I was probably about eight or nine years old. I still have it in my house. It is hard to believe that this ship sank 110 years ago. But in this, uh, pod, in this uh, podcast series, we are going to learn about how one ship came to the came to the rescue. She may not have been able to have saved all of those whom could have been saved, but she did make a valiant effort, going going out of her way fifty-eight miles from where she was currently at, being in a southeasterly location or southeastern location from the the famed Titanic, but yet, but yet no matter, but yet her despite the fact that she and her crew, of this other ship, made every valiant effort in coming to uh, the the rescue of those who survived, she still was um, awarded for her acts of heroism, but yet there was this other ship that was nearby and didn't do anything. And yet, here we have this Marconi wireless system. Why didn't this crew... Aboard this other ship bother to use its Marconi wireless system. Why were they choosing to be complacent and yet ignorant? Well, we will learn about that stuff in other podcast uh, segments uh, going forward. I do know that when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn about the Carpathia. We're going to learn about her captain. We're going to learn about what line she was uh, serving. In other words, was she serving the Cunard line, the Leland line? Hamburg, America, just to name a few, we're going to learn about uh, Carpathia's history, how long she had been in operation. After all, isn't it fair to say that a ship who came 58 miles to try to um, make every valiant effort there was in uh, saving the Titanic and her crew, don't you think she ought to be uh, recognized? Absolutely it just doesn't make any sense why other ships that were nearby could have come to the to the rescue of the titanic most notably this mystery ship as a matter of fact um, historians still debate to this day as to what could have been done had that mis- had that mystery ship actually made a valiant effort in coming to the aid of the, of the titanic well i do know this much that in 1912, and just before 1912, when Titanic made her first debut on the North Atlantic waters, man had this sense of pride. He had a large degree of hubris in him. He was convinced that nothing could stop mankind from doing all things impossible. While, yes, it is important to dream, it is important to to take chances, there also have to be boundaries. There also has to be a sense of empathy. There has to be a sense of security and safety and ensuring that, okay, if something does go drastically wrong aboard the grandest of, of vessels, being the Titanic, how how is the crew, how is the captain and his crew going to respond? How are the captain and his crew going to ensure that all passengers aboard this 882-foot-long ship will be out of harm's way. In other words, yes, Titanic might be 882 feet long, stretching more than two-and-a-half football fields in length. Yes, Titanic may have everything that perhaps some other ships just simply don't have, but yet there's this thought that still lingers... That still resu- that still resides in her um in her captain and his crew that she's unsinkable. That no matter what that that no matter what stands in her way, she'll dodge all the bullets and she'll set the record for getting uh from London to New York in the fastest time. You know, even if we have her going just above her mass speed of twenty-one knots. She can do anything. She's the ship of dreams. That's what at least we were told. But on the night of April fourteenth, 1912, no one ever thought that her first voyage was going to be her last. Well, folks, we are in for a great ride, and I should say journey, as we are going to learn a great deal about what happened on the other side of the night, the Carpathia, The Californian and the Night the Titanic Was Lost by Daniel Allen Butler. Well, thank you for your time, as always. I look forward to being back on the air again. And no matter where you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. And thank you for being such ardent listeners, because without you all, I don't know where I would be. Stay safe.